Uh, just a couple things. If you got your e-Bible, I'll be preaching from the New American Standard this morning. Uh, if you're at home, I think you ch- uh, 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 check on Memo or something in the chat, and you can download, download the notes. Uh, it's not the notes that has Pastor Jeff lost. I just wanted to clarify that. Um, but I will pay you for the kind words, Pastor Jeff. Um, and uh, if you, by the way, if you have your, your Bible here and it's not New American Standard, I would encourage you to start bringing the real Bible to church with you. So... Um, <laughs> <laughs> I figured, I, I wanted to wake the, the, the team up so you'll listen. So, uh, okay, so there were two brothers, notorious in this town, and the older brother dies. And uh, the, the younger brother comes to the town preacher and he says, um, these guys are rich because they've ripped everybody off and they own everything. He says, uh, hey, you know, uh, preacher, would you, would you do the funeral? Um, he says, I, I realize there's, there may be some problems here, but if you'll do the funeral, um, there's, I'll give a huge donation to your church. You can use it for all the ministries you want. Um, and, um, but the only thing you have to do, I have just one request that at some point you have to say that my brother was a saint. So quandary for the preacher, obviously. I mean, these guys are notorious criminals. They just have not, they've always been able to weasel out of uh, of getting, going to jail. And, and so finally, he thinks about it and he prays about it and he comes back to the guy and says, oh, okay, I'll do it. He said, you know, you're gonna give a big donation for the ministries to the church, right? I said, okay, yeah. So, so the day comes, he's preaching the, the, uh, the, the eulogy and the, the crowd, the congregation is stunned, is packed out because they've come to hear what this preacher's gonna say about this horrible, notorious older brother that's dead now. And um, he says, uh, he, he launches, the crowd stunned as he launches into this, this, this guy that was standing before, that is down here in this casket, he was horrible. He was miserable human being. And he, 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 just, he just launches on the guy. And, and his, his, uh, I wrote down his last, uh, his last uh, his summary. Here it was. The man who lies in the casket was a good-for-nothing, evil, stinking, wicked criminal. He was ruthless, conniving, filthy, murderous thief. But compared to his brother, he was a saint. So now, most of, some of you will get that tomorrow. Uh, so mo- most of us are aware of the secularization in the soci- our society that has happened and is so pervasive, right? But the reali- reality is, is no matter how secularized we get, everyone admits, everybody knows there's right and wrong, everybody understands the reality of sin, even if they don't use the word. And in fact, um, everyone can laugh at that joke, Right? Because everyone knows there are people who spent their lives the right way and people who spent their lives the wrong way. And even the most dyed-in-the-wool atheists would rather have a lot more Mother Teresas than Hitlers. Even though at its base, if all of this is random purposeless forces, there's no such thing as purpose or good or bad. And it's just preferences. And everybody's just carrying out what they're... uh, what their DNA said they should do anyway. So the reality is um, we're in a day, though, where the, the word sin is the new S word, right? Our culture has jettisoned the concept of sin uh, and has basically banned its use. But the Scripture, it's amazing. How, if you look for the words, just go in your exhaustive concordance and look at unrighteousness and sin and transgression and evil and wickedness and all those kind of things, and you'll find thousands of verses on the topics, on the, top, the topics related to sin. So, um, 
In the church, though, what strikes me is there's such a limited understanding of sin. And some of you are thinking, man, I wish I'd have stayed home online. Um, uh, but but I, what I want to point out is um, there, there isn't so much an incorrect understanding of sin as there is an inadequate understanding. Um, and you're going to find that understanding the scriptural understanding of what it means to be pleasing to God is actually very freeing. Um, so let's look... Um, at the most commonly referenced definition from the scripture of sin, it comes from James 4.17, it'll be on on the screen. Uh, To the one who knows the right thing to do, you may be familiar with this verse, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to them it is sin. So this gives us a key concept. Here's your first blank in your notes. It gives us a key concept. Number one, the most common definition for sin is walking outside of God's will by breaking his known laws. This is the common understanding of sin, that God has revealed right and wrong in his word, and sin is when we disobey his word, either failing to do what he has said we should or doing what he has said we shouldn't. And in fact, to be saved demands an acknowledgement that, Lord, I, I was in rebellion. I have been in rebellion. I have actually willingly, knowingly gone against your ways and your will, and Lord, if you will, by your grace, I receive your forgiveness. It wasn't, it wasn't somebody else's fault, it was mine. I'm the one that needs the forgiveness, Lord. And, and in fact, that's a good place to stop because between the people who are here and the people who are online, uh, I wouldn't be uh, surprised that every one of us needs to look in the mirror. Um, now, by the way, one of the reasons, one of the reasons um, uh, I'm... Uh, uh, I've uh, positioned myself here with all this stuff is Pastor Allie wants to preach on mirrors and she plans to bring a sh- sledgehammer because she's dying to smash the mirror. So I told Pastor Kurt today that I would protect the mirror from Allie. Um, but uh, so, so uh, just right now, everyone online and in the room, just look in the mirror and say, Lord, is there anything in my life that I know shouldn't be there? And just acknowledge it. And Holy Spirit, tell me what it is, and Lord, by your power, not by mine, for my righteousness is like filthy rags, but by your power, come and save me. And I don't want to miss that opportunity because the first definition of sin is a correct one, but as we're going to see, it's just by itself inadequate. Um, So um, that's key concept number two. You ready? Write it in. While most, the most common definition of sin is accurate, it is also inadequate. So this morning, we're going to move from the James 4 definition, and what we'll find will really surprise a lot of us. You ready for this? Ironically, the other biblical definition for sin, you ready for this? The other biblical definition for sin isn't for sinners. <laughs> it's for believers. Something dramatically changes when we're in Christ, okay? And now all of a sudden, the shackles of sin that were separating us from God are no longer there. And his spirit comes in and cleanses us. And now, what's very fascinating is how the scripture shows us how dramatically the concept of sin. It doesn't mean that you're return, you know, the, I love the, the uh, you know, being in emergency medicine, this kind of stuff doesn't gross us out. So one of my favorite verses is, you know, don't be a dog returning to your vomit, um, <laughs> right? The, the, don't return back there, but you should be able to 
in fact, grow past definition number one. And look at this. Um, the other biblical definition for sin, it's your next, it's your next uh, blank. It comes directly out of Romans 14, 23. In fact, we're going to write in the phrase here. You ready for this? Whatever is not from faith is sin. Uh-oh. Here, I thought it was, oh, good. I'm not sleeping in the wrong bed. I pay my tithe. Got it covered. <laughs> no, Paul slams us with an incredibly high bar. Whatever isn't from faith, whatever part of my life isn't from trusting in God, is sin. Um, I'll never forget how I discovered how big of an issue this was for me. It was when Dana and I were living in Tucson, probably it was 20 years ago at least, and, and I was, um, no, it had been, yeah, significantly more than 20 years ago, and, and so I was at U of A at the medical school working hard to get promoted and tenured and all of that, so I was working hard all week long to do that, and um, then I was working all weekend long because I had this Bible class at the church, and the church was growing, and the class was growing, and it was getting really big, and, and I was really finding great joy in teaching the Word, and, and I rediscovered the Old Testament then, and, and it just was opening all up, and so uh, I'll never forget one, one evening after working like 12 or 15 hours from the time I got home on Friday until Saturday night now, fairly late, um, getting ready for uh, teaching the Bible the next morning, and, and Dana found me literally on my face in our room where God revealed to me that the reason why I was working so hard all weekend and studying the Bible so hard was because I wanted people to think I was a great Bible teacher. Now, think about this. I was doing great things. People's lives were being changed. God was using me. But at its foundation, Dan was doing the teaching for Dan. It wasn't from faith. It was my strength. It was my abilities. And in fact, this was so impactful. I wrote it down, and I'll show you. Here's my, just so you know, I'm not preaching to anybody this morning. Here's my testimony about this kind of sin. Look at this. Dan, this was my sense of what God was saying, the Holy Spirit. Dan, you're doing good things, but in your strength. You're doing good things, but trusting in your own abilities. You're doing good things, but not by faith. You're trusting in yourself, not me. And Dan, whatever is not from faith is sin. I was on my face. Give me your, back your effort and your striving and your abilities and your service. I don't need you to be strong or smart or eloquent. I don't need that. What I need you to do is acknowledge your weakness. What I need you to remember is that no matter how hard you work for the kingdom, if you do it in your own strength, it will fail. That's my testimony. And uh, this gives me, gave me a huge wake-up call. Here it is. I don't know if it's relevant for you, but it certainly is for me, right? It, in when we fail to walk by faith, our good deeds may be religious, but they aren't actually righteous. I can be teaching God's word in sin because it's about Dan or it's about trying to, to be the center rather than the word and the Holy Spirit being the center and getting me out of the way. Notice, the sinners have an easier, easier definition of sin, don't they? Yeah, 
Whatever is not from faith is sin. So, with this perspective in mind, turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 17. That's about, oh, 20% into your Bible, right? It's right after Ruth, and when you get to the Samuels, the Kings, and the Chronicles, it's 1 Samuel, the first of those six uh, books. Uh, 17 to a really, really, really famous story, uh, and let's uh, read it together um, from 1 uh, Samuel chapter 17, verse 3. And you can see we're going to do a lot of text, so if you, if you have an e-Bible, uh, now would be the time to get it out. And the Philistines stood on the mountainside on one side, while Israel stood on the mountain on the other side, with the valley in between. Then a champion came out from the armies of the Philistines named Goliath from Gath, whose height was six cubits and a span. Some of the scholars argue about this, but think Shaquille O'Neal at 400 pounds, but 2% body weight. Uh, uh, body fat, right? I mean, this is like a the most gigantic guy on the planet, and he's buff, okay? Um, no, nobody argues about that. Look at verse 8. And he stood and shouted at the ranks of Israel and said to them, Why do you come out to draw in battle array? Am I not the Philistine, and you merely servants of Saul? Choose a man for yourselves and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight with me and kill me, then we will become your servants. But if I prevail against him and kill him, then you shall become our servants and serve us. Again, the Philistine said, I defy the ranks of Israel this day. Give me a man that we may fight together. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Verse 16, look at this. And the Philistine came forward morning and evening for 40 days and took his stand. So, Pause, David's back home, right? Uh, the youngest of eight sons. Jesse, his dad, says, hey, your three big brothers are out, on the battle, are out in the battle. Here's some food, take it to him." Um, and so he shows up, finds them at the battlefront, and now we pick up at verse 23, right? Here he is, David talking to his brothers, verse 23. And as he was talking to them, behold, the champion, the Philistine from Gath named Goliath, was coming up from the army of the Philistines, and he spoke... These words, and David heard them. Verse 24, when all the men of Israel saw the man, they fled from him and were greatly afraid. Verse 25, and the men of Israel said, have you seen the man who is coming up? Surely he's coming up to defy Israel. And it will be that the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's home free in Israel. Read in American, no taxes. That's a good deal, okay? Verse 26, then David spoke to the men who were standing by him saying, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and takes away the reproach from Israel? For, listen to David, little guy. In fact, probably more like this. For who is this uncircumcised Philistine? You are never gonna forget that. <laughs> that will indelibly be in the word just like some of the songs, Right? Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should taunt the armies of the living God? Verse 31 now, this is just too, this is too much fun, I can't sit. I, I'm trying to do this with thersology because Dana says it's less distracting for me to sit. But I, uh, here we go, look at this, verse 31, next paragraph. Then, when the words of David spoke were heard again, they were told to Saul and he sent for him. And David said to Saul, let no man's heart fail on account of him. Your servant will go and fight with the Philistine. Then Saul said to David, you are not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are but a youth while he has been a warrior from his youth. But David said to Saul, your servant was tending 
by his father's sheep, when a lion or a bear came and took a lamb from the flock, I went out after him and attacked him and rescued it from his mouth. And when he rose he, up against me, I seized him by the beard and struck him and killed him. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. Verse 37, and David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, go and may the Lord be with you. What are you going to say? Then Saul clothed David with his garments and put the bronze helmet on his head and clothed him with armor. And David girded his sword over his armor and tried to walk for he had not tested them. By the way, I mean, think of this. Okay, how tall is David? You know, like this. Saul, it says in the scripture, Saul was head and shoulders above everybody else, right? So imagine Saul's sword. So I see David here, and the belt is actually up under his armpits, and the sword is still too small. See, you're never going to forget this story. Uh, the, 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 the sword is still too long. And David tries to walk, and he ends up going on his pivot around the sword because the sword is stuck in the ground, and he's got his belt on the armpits. So there's where you, there's the picture of David here. You ready? So here's what happens. Verse 39, and David girded his sword over his armor, tried to walk for he had not tested them. So David said, I cannot go with these. I have not tested them. And David took them off and he took his stick. By the way, he didn't even get to the, to the, um, to being impressive enough for his stick to be called a staff yet. Right? In the Hebrew, it's stick. He took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook and put them in the shepherd's bag, which he had, even in the pouch, and his sling was in his hand, and he approached the Philistine. Then the Philistine came and approached David with the shield bearer in front of him. When the Philistine looked and saw David, he disdained him, for he was but a youth and ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, am I a dog? Don't you love this? Am I a dog that you come out to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. The Philistine also said to David, come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the sky and the beasts of the field. Then David said to the Philistine, you come to me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the host, the God of the army, the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have taunted this day the Lord will deliver you up into my hands and I will strike you down and remove your head from you and I will give the dead bodies of the armies of the Philistines to the birds of the sky, the beasts of the field, that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel. Verse 47, and that all the assembly may know that the Lord does not deliver by sword or by spear for the battle is the Lord's. We sung that this morning and we're gonna sing it again at the end. The battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. Then it happened when the Philistine rose and came and drew near to meet David, and David ran quickly toward the battle to meet the, the Philistine, and David put his hand into his bag, took it from a, a stone and, a sling, and slung it, and struck the Philistine on his forehead, and the stone sank into his forehead so that he fell on his face to the ground. What an amazing passage. Now, I'd like to point out one really bizarre, almost essentially out of place piece of detail in the story. Look at verse 40 again. 
And he took his stick in his hand and chose for himself five smooth stones from the brook. Now, what a strange interlude in the middle of the story, right? Uh, Why in the world did David pick up five stones? Now, you may have heard, you know, I've been in church all my life, so I've heard this taught many, many times from this passage, and you may have heard any number of things. The, the, the renditions I've heard uh, have usually gone along these lines. Um, the, like, for instance, I love this one. The, the Lord always has a, bla- a plan B just in case his first plan doesn't work. Well, there's a high view of sovereignty, right? Um, uh, or David, you know, David didn't want to presume upon God. He didn't want to be, you know, cocky or uh, egotistical or, or, or appear overconfident. So he took along four extra stones just in case he missed, right? So, you know, so be humble, right? There's no way. There's no way. There wasn't a single crack in the armor of David's faith. It never crossed his mind that he was going to miss. Look with me back at verse 36. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them since he has taunted the armies of the living God. And David said, the Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear, he will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. You ready for this? Why the great confidence? Because David wasn't relying on five stones. In fact, David wasn't relying on one stone. He was relying on the mighty one of Israel. David was walking in the purest kind of faith. This is no merit of my own, but I know a God, and I really know him. Now, if the four extra stones weren't there as a backup in case he missed, why five stones? And some of you might say, so you can impress people in Bible trivia, right? Um, but I have found, the more I've studied the word, there's no, turn with me to the end of 2 Thess- uh, Samuel, so one book to the right, 2 Samuel, chapter 21. I think there's 24 chapters in there, so it's near the end of 2 Samuel. 2 Samuel, chapter 21, and uh, this was one more time. But when I saw this, I just was, it just blew my mind. It's like, Dan, there's no, there's no Bible trivia, Dan. There's only the profound findings in the Word that you haven't worked hard enough to dig out yet. So watch this. This is amazing. Verse 15, chapter 21 of 2 Samuel. Now the Philistines were at war again with Israel. David went down with his servants with him. As they fought against the Philistines, David became weary. Now, remember, he's already killed, back in 1 Samuel, he's already killed one giant. Okay, everybody got that? Goliath from Gath is giant number one. Verse 16, then Ishibanab, by the way, Josiah and Michelle, you, you, you missed the opportunity. I'm sure nobody else has used this name for their firstborn son. You missed it. Then Ishibanab, who was among the descendants of the giant, the weight of whose spear was 300 shekels of bronze in weight and was girded with a new sword, and he intended to kill David. But Abishai, the son of Zariah, helped him and struck the Philistine and killed him. Giant number two. Right? Goliath from Gath, number one. Ishibanab, number two. Verse 18. Now it came about after this that there was war again with the Philistines at Gob. Then Sibachai the Hushathite... Another one if they use Ishibanab. Uh, Sibachai the Hushathite struck down Saph, who was from the descendants of the giant. Giant number three. 
Verse 19, and there was war with the Philistines again at Gob, and Elhanan, the son of that guy from the Bethlehemite, killed Goliath the Gittite. Now remember, you gotta, this is kind of like if you've ever seen on Nickelodeon, the young ones here, the Bob Newhart show. This is those two brothers from the south, and they, they introduce themselves. They say, hi, this is my brother Daryl, and this is my other brother Daryl. This is his other brother, Goliath, okay? So this is number four, Goliath the Gittite, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. And there was war at Gath again, and there was, now sorry, but this is still Bible trivia to me. You ready for this? There was a man of great stature who had six fingers on each hand and six toes on each foot, 24 in number. Maybe it's the elders in Revelation, right? And he also had been born to the giant. And when he defied Israel, Jonathan, the son of Shimei, David's brother struck him down, giant number five. These four were born to the giant at Gath, and they fell by the hand of David and by the hand of his servants. You ready for the amazing biblical linkage? Write it in. Here's your blank. As David was reaching down into the brook, he wasn't testifying in his faith to slay one giant but five, taking them on in his mind, in his spirit, in his faith, all at once. My God's bigger than your five giants and anybody else you sinned. See, five stones, five giants. David knew that God is 100% accurate when he slays the enemy. When David was tested by God to check his faith, he got a perfect score, perfect Five out of five. So let's think about who God used to deliver Israel. God could have chosen anybody he wanted, but here we have this little shepherd boy. Remember, you're defying the armies of the living God, right? Mickey Mouse sound, put that in your mind. There's this little David, and God has these thousands of battle-hardened Israelite soldiers to 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 choose from, and and yet, while they're all cowering, this little child looks incredulously at Goliath, and he says, you can't talk about my God like that. Little boy, everybody else running. And and now I'd like us to think about when God sent Samuel the prophet to Jesse's household, and there were eight boys, and he said, I'm going to anoint you a king from one of your sons. And so who does he show up? Who shows up first? Big old strong firstborn Eliab, impressive warrior, the one who, by the way, that we didn't have the time to read in the story, actually disses David for coming out to the battle. Yeah? Big, tough Eliab. And uh, you probably know, Samuel goes all the way down through the seven. David's out with the sheep. And are you ready for this? His own father forgets that he has an eighth son because it would so never occur to Jesse that David could be God's great king. Too little, too small, not enough, not gifted enough. He doesn't have it. Am I saying anything that some people who've been afraid to go take on the battle to be afraid to be in ministry because you just don't have it? Well, neither did King David. And Jesus, when he comes back, is gonna sit on David's throne. That's how great A person can become when they just say, I don't have it, but my God does. So, David was so pathetic, Samuel forgot he even was there. But you see, God knew that big old strong Eliab was going to come to a day 
where he was going to face a greater foe, and like all the rest of the great mighty soldiers, they were going to turn tail and run. And run. So God was looking for a person that wouldn't do battle in his own strength, a person whose victories wouldn't come from their power or strength or from their might. If he actually thought about it, David, think about this, how many stones would he have picked up when he stopped at the brook? You ever thought about that? I mean, if you thought about it, I mean, uh, 10, 15, 100? Um, but... Uh, If he didn't need 10, there's a very reasonable question right in your blank, an obvious question. Wouldn't it be okay, you're ready for this, to take just one extra stone just in case? Think about it. Five out of six faith would have been way better than all the rest of the Israelite soldiers, right? I mean, my goodness, they wouldn't have taken Goliath on with a quarry full of boulders and a catapult. They were running. So, why not just pick up one extra stone? So now let's bring this story forward 3,000 years. What about us? God is calling us to drop all of our extra stones, all of the things that we feel we need to protect ourselves, rather than relying on him to bring perfect deliverance. See, God is asking us to have five stones for five giants kind of faith not hedging our bets, not clinging on to our own plans just in case God doesn't come through, but instead leaving the diving board. You know that feeling? Too late to go back and being totally dependent upon him in every aspect of life, and that gives us our application. Here it is, right in your blanks. Our application, the great victories, listen church, the great victories don't happen when God's people play it safe. The great victories don't come like that. You see, um, in David's life, notice the real evidence of faith. I'm going to give you two, right? Real faith evidence, number one, here's your blank. David intentionally put himself at risk in the battle against the enemy. He intentionally put himself at risk. You see, David didn't wait for someone else to come along and show that they had great faith. He didn't carefully calculate all the risks up front and then make a wise decision. Now, as soon as I say something like that, right, a most reasonable question immediately comes up. Aren't we, as biblical followers of Christ, aren't we supposed to balance faith with wisdom? Of course we are. Of course we are. But I believe in our day, in our culture, I believe the typical believer has lived on the side of safety and comfort and ease for so long that we've almost left faith out of the picture. And then we have the audacity to call our risk aversion for the kingdom wisdom. But the word never allows us to confuse cowardice and weakness with wisdom. Think about this. If wisdom was David's only consideration, would he have ever faced Goliath? Never. See, it's not wisdom only. There isn't just one virtue. It's faith perfectly mixed with wisdom, which only comes from the Holy Spirit leading us. But we, I think, I fear we have tipped so far to risk aversion that it has kept us from taking on the giants. This is one of the problems with comfortable Christianity. Some of us have forgotten how to identify the work of the enemy and then to get mad enough to do something about it. 
When was the last time you said you can't talk about my God like that? If not appropriate in the setting, at least in your heart. I'm going to do something about this. When was the last time? Think of what happened during the 40 days of Goliath taunting Israel. While everyone in the camp of God's people was getting scared, David was getting angry. Look at his response to the giant taunting Israel. This is what Jesus and the New Testament would call righteous anger. It's from God. Listen to this. Look at the scripture back from verse 26. Then David said to the men who were standing by him, what will be done for the man who kills this Philistine and rids Israel of disgrace? Who, for who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Can you hear him seething? That he has dared to defy the armies of the living God. While everyone else was looking at what a big problem Goliath was, David was getting in his face and planning how he could take him out. Everybody else is running, and this little boy has a plan. Now let's stop for a minute and look around us. The enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy, and you know what? He's being really good at it, isn't he? And he's stealing a generation. Doesn't that make you mad? The weak, the marginalized, and the poor are silently suffering all around us. Doesn't that make you mad? Pornography is growing like a fatal cancer among boys and men, even in the church. Drug runners are destroying people's lives. Children are being trafficked for sex. Doesn't that make us mad? The enemy is ruining marriages and breaking up families. Doesn't it make you mad? Church, open your eyes and look around. See where the enemy is destroying people. Find out where he's ruining lives and where he's crushing the innocent and then go after him. Pick up your stone and your sling. Listen to Paul's incredible admonition of what God wants to do to the enemy. You ready for this? Through us. You may have never seen these two verses before, but they are powerful. Listen for a moment, chapter 6. Look at this. For the report of your obedience has reached everyone. So remember where it starts? These are people who have been forgiven and have given their lives to the Holy Spirit. And it's the Spirit's righteousness and power. Their obedience is because they've become like Jesus, because Jesus is living in them. It's not their obedience. It's not, remember, it's not sin number one issue. It's that, hey, we belong to you, Jesus. Tell us what to do. So look at this. The report of your obedience has reached to everyone. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. And are you ready for this? When we're clothed with that righteousness, from the uh, Holy Spirit, look at this. And the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Church, what are we waiting for? Do something here at Renovation. Let me just give a super short list here. You can sponsor a child in an impoverished nation through Nazarene Compassionate Ministries. Get involved with one of our many programs that help the homeless help veterans, help women's shelters, schools, and people in need. You can help change the world by giving sacrificially. All of us should be giving sacrificially to Global Missions, that program, and, and the Mercy Project. But whatever you do, whatever you do, church, get your head up and look around because faith looks for giants and then takes them out. It's great if you came in this morning and you're not committing adultery. 
congratulations. That's great. It's great if your heart is pure. That's great. But listen, whatever is not from faith is sin. Listen, believers, the call is to find the giants and take them out. So let's stop for just a minute. Look in there. Ask the Holy Spirit right now, where are you hiding out? Where are you wimping out? Do the people you work with not even know that you follow Jesus? Lord, where am I not walking in faith? Real faith, evidence number two. David put himself in a place where if God didn't manifest his power, here's your blanks, (laughs) he was crazy, look at this. He put himself in a place where if God didn't manifest his power, he was in big trouble. (laughs) Wow, now there's a real wisdom precept. (laughs) Put yourself in the place where if God doesn't come through with power, you are in trouble. You see, have you ever noticed that David didn't have an escape plan? David didn't have a plan B. David didn't have a fallback position. He was out there. In fact, notice... (laughs) Notice what he did when he finally came for the time for David to decide to either take the plunge or to run. Look at what the text says in verse 48. Then it happened when, look at this, when the Philistine came closer to meet David, that David ran quickly toward the battle line. When he got up real close and could see that eight feet tall guy, you know what David did? While they're running that way, he runs right at the enemy to meet the Philistine. I don't know about you, but that convicts me. If if we always wait for a safe plan to take on the enemy, if we always have to have redundancy and escape hatches and secure plans, we'll never go on the offensive, church. We'll engage in little skirmishes here and there, and we'll take on a few small isolated bands of ragtag militia, but we'll never take on the giants. Why? Because the very nature of taking on the big battles is putting ourselves in a position where God is our only security. God is our only backup. God is our only safety. God is our only hope. To take on the Goliaths, we have to put ourselves in places where if God doesn't deliver us, we're toast. So let's look at a parallel biblical analogy. This is where we're going to finish. Not yet, though, Josiah. Not quite that. Um, parallel biblical uh, analogy. Here you go. R- write it in. It comes right out of Matthew 18 3. You'll probably know this. Unless you become like children, think of this. Unless you become like children, you shall not enter the kingdom of heaven. Now, that has to be unpacked, right? This has been interpreted in many ways, but let me emphasize one of the important meanings of using two childish concepts. Here's childish concept number one, write it in, here's your blank. There is a childishness that comes from naivete, right? There's a childishness like that, right? This kind of childishness we should grow out of, we need to grow out of, right? For example, we teach our children not to trust strangers. Why? Because a naive child would tend to accept the kindness of a stranger at face value. But we know 
that behind a kind face can lurk evil intent. We know that as adults, but a child doesn't inherently know that, right? So there's a childishness that comes from naivete, and we should definitely grow out of that. We should be wise as serpents, as Jesus said, right? But childish concept number two is also incredibly biblical. You ready for this? We just heard it in the text, right? There's a childishness, here's your blank, that comes from trusting someone who's trustworthy. And look what Matthew 18 teaches us about this kind of childishness. It's a key concept. It kind of scares me. Here's your blanks. If we grow out of the Matthew 18 kind of childishness, we cannot belong to the king. When we become good at this religion deal, and I'm good at not doing this, and I'm doing that, and I'm doing it, and I'm serving in the church, and I'm ministering, maybe even I'm teaching or preaching the Bible, we have this down. You know what? That's not how children think. Children just looked at that Jesus, and they said, I'll follow him anywhere. I'll do anything he asks me to do. Let me ask you, when was the last time you said, Jesus, I'll do anything you ask me to? And then went to the Word and just started reading the Word, Jesus, in written form. And said, okay, thus says the Lord, that's what I'm going to do. That's what children do when they really trust someone. So I wanted to just illustrate this before we end. Um, when Rebecca was a little tiny toddler, I mean, she was really, really petite. David was like, David like came out of the womb and she was two and David was like twice as big as her. So, I mean, she was so petite and so she was so light. I just, I would throw her up in the air and she'd be coming down like this, you know, like the parachute thing. When I started doing it at first, she was horrified. Um, and then I'd catch her in the armpits and I'd throw her up again and catch her in the armpits and, and she absolutely loved it. And it never crossed her mind that I was going to drop her, ever. Um, and what is really interesting is she was old enough now that she knew if I dropped her, she was going to get hurt, right? Uh, in fact, what was amazing, though, she trusted me implicitly. Her trust was so absolute, and her joy of the adventure was so great. I could literally wear my arms out, and Rebecca would be going, do it again, Daddy. Daddy. Do it again. And I'm thinking, no, my arms have gone aerobic, Rebecca. I'm going to be really sore tomorrow, right? I mean, do it again, Daddy. Do it again. So here's the question. Have you lost your childlike trust in your heavenly Father? Will you let him throw you high into the air? I mean, you're, you're out there. If he drops you, you're going to get hurt. Will you let him take you places where if he doesn't catch you, it's over? And are you ready to follow him and to so allow him to change you that after you've had that terrifying feeling in the pit of your stomach, as you start the free fall, you'll say to him, Jesus, that was great. Let's do it again. Pastor Josiah, come on up. And bring your team. As we finish in light of the word and what it's taught us this morning, I want you to look in the mirror again. By the way, you're not supposed to be looking at me looking in the mirror. Yours, this is a metaphor, right? Um, 
Pastor Kurt's brilliant preacher preaches in metaphors, right? You're supposed to be looking in the mirror right now saying, Holy Spirit, where have I wimped out? Where have people been watching me have a wimpy Christianity and a wimpy testimony and a, and a wimpy faith? Maybe my children and grandchildren are watching that. Maybe my friends are watching that. And oh God, make me like a child again where I just hear your word and I go because what's the worst thing that can happen? What's the worst thing that can happen? I'll get caught by you, Lord, even if I die. We have missionaries all over the world right now where every single day they're at risk for dying. And you know what? I've never heard one of them say anything other than that I'm having the greatest days of my life. You know what Paul taught us? Paul taught us if you're in the center of his will, he didn't teach it safe. You know what he taught? If you're in the center of his will, you're not going to die until God's done with you. Isn't that Paul's life? If I'm in the center of God's will, I may well die, and he did, probably beheaded. That was the good news back then, right? Because if you were a Roman citizen, you got beheaded instead of crucified, right? So right now, in the mirror, Lord, convict me. And now, after those incredible words on the battle, that the battle belongs to the Lord that we've just read from David, and you may have thought of 2 Chronicles chapter 20, where Josiah says, we don't know what to do, Lord, but our eyes are on you. Gigantic army surrounding him, and he says, our eyes are on you. And then he goes and says, just like his father David, Lord, the battle belongs to you. You just told me, show me what battle, and the battle belongs to you, and I may get taken out. But Lord, find me on the front line against the great enemies. That's where my Christianity wants to live. Let's sing together these great words. Battle belongs. Stand with me. Lord Jesus, I pray that this morning your word has gone deep into our spirits and souls and minds. Five stones is all you need for five giants because you're not counting on your sling, your stone, your weapon. You're counting on the mighty one of Israel. Oh God, forgive me. I have made you too small in my eyes. And now, Lord, may your church go. And as we spread out, may we find the giants and in faith watch you take them out. We love you, Lord. Amen. Go in the power of our God. Have a great week in faith. Love you. Bye now.